people have kind of gotten to a certain level of knowledge about what informs their existence, but have forgotten about the very basics of life. What gives me hope is these young people. We always find each other. That's kind of how we survive. Hi, welcome to Land Water Justice, Wallawa Valley. This is episode four, Healing the Land, Healing Ourselves. This episode contains sensitive topics related to assault and abuse. We've been talking a lot about the atrocities of the past and the removal of people from their land, as well as colonization within the valley. But how do we move from these atrocities? How do we grow? How do we heal? What does that look like today? Those are the questions that we're asking ourselves now and what we're going to be discussing within this episode. After the removal of Native American people from their homelands and the push to confine them onto reservations, the United States of America did not stop there in erasure of Native Americans throughout the entire nation. As a whole, the U.S. wanted to erase Natives from the general pop culture or knowledge, specifically this genocide that occurred, it was just swept under the rug with the main point wanting to be that Native Americans are out of sight and out of mind. With ignoring the atrocities that have occurred in the past and present, no one but Native American people knew what really happened. The history that we learn in class is that the Native American people were peaceful and wanted to give up their land and that these wars and, and murders and, and deaths didn't occur, but rather it's a beautiful American story where it's a melting pot of people and we got along. And that's just not the case. They didn't happen at the beginning of our American quote unquote history. It happened in 1950. It happened in the 1980s. It happened in the 1990s. It's happening today. This erasure is still occurring. The genocide is still living on. I guess for some background knowledge, more relocation and removals occurred after Native people were on their reservations. Of course, like uh, for the instance of gold mining or the instance of timber and trees, the U.S. needed more resources and a new relocation occurred. And this is the 1950 Relocation Act, where many Native people were sent to cities. They were promised all of these jobs, wealth, and homes. But that wasn't the case. Specifically for Seattle, during the Relocation Act, many were sent to Chinatown, where they did build a community, but there was a lot of struggle, especially for jobs and resources and being put into an environment that wasn't theirs. And this happened not just in Seattle, but many cities. And this is now where we have the urban Indian. And as someone being an urban Indian, it's, it's difficult to hear about the importance of being on one's land and physically being connected to your home and space where your ancestors reside and where emotion and history that is that is a part of you physically, you cannot connect to. I do want to stray away though from the idea that urban Indians don't have a home. And this is my own personal anecdote, but I think we find homes in the rest of the native community that now find themselves in these big concrete cities. We find beauty within the metro buses and the Seattle Indian centers that we now call homes. But beyond the Relocation Act, we also see sterilization of Native women. 
the idea that some doctors wouldn't even contact or let women know that they sterilized them, it was unconsensual. This goes along with the idea of not wanting to continue to have native youth, native children, stopping the generations to come in the future is another form of genocide that we see. Just like the very clear erasure of native youth, native people, native culture, native language. But yeah, in, in history, beyond just beyond just moving Native American people to reservations, taking away their homes and their lands, we see other forms of genocide. Yeah, you're bringing up a lot of good points. One thing that I'm thinking about, which was a huge loss of culture and just of the Native life in America was um, the institution of boarding schools. And I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that. I could, but I think our speaker, Lee, speaks about boarding schools in a more impactful way. So let's listen to her. Survived the residential schools. What happened is that the Catholics and other religions would come and get our children, like little tiny children, and take them away from their homes and take them to a boarding school. And they'd go to school there. They would not, they were not allowed to have contact with their family. They were not allowed to follow their traditions. They weren't even allowed to keep their own name. They had to take a, a, a biblical name. There is a big move to go and find the graves of all of those children. And it's over 3,000 children's graves have been identified that died in those boarding schools because of the way that they were treated. The food that they ate, the punishment that they were given, the sexual abuse was horrible. Nakia also emphasizes the horrors of boarding schools by saying this. There was one right here that was operating up until the 1930s that was associated with the tuberculosis epidemic that was happening. It was just another extension of the boarding school area where they were literally physically beating our people, subjugating our people, every day telling them that our language, our culture was of no value whatsoever. Yeah, boarding schools are a constant haunting for these children. We're told that their way of living was not only wrong, but ugly. It's really devastating and the the generation that went through this trauma had to unlearn these teachings and find beauty within themselves and their culture and their people. But yeah, another another form of genocide that we see in the Americas. Yeah, thank you for touching on that. And I just wanted to add, like, the history of boarding schools is something that people have no idea even occurred in the, uh, the United States, but also in Canada. You're right. And that's something that Nakia also emphasizes. Let's listen to him. Relocation, termination. I mean, there's all these things that you guys probably never even know about. This country definitely doesn't know about. The boarding schools. You heard about the thing in Canada and everybody's, oh, what's happening up there? You know, all these boarding schools. Well, there was more boarding schools in the U.S. than there were in Canada. But people in the, in the U.S. will not acknowledge that this happened to our people because we don't want to do anything that that tears away at the, the proud legacy of the United States. We don't want to face that painful past. They don't want to, the, my wife is from Canada. They, they did this whole reconciliation where they went to all the reserves up there and they gathered the stories and they talked to those people that went to the residential schools up there. And I want to highlight how he discusses 
how the U.S. has had more boarding schools than Canada, yet we aren't even close to approaching recognition. Tati, how does language or the loss of language factor into this genocide? Language is important to the continuing of culture within not only Native communities, but all communities. Language ties you to the land. Language ties you to your people. Language ties you to your foods. And that was one of the first things that boarding schools took away. They said, you cannot speak your native language anymore. Here is English. And this is what you will be speaking. If not, you'll have consequences. And I think it's really interesting because jumping to current day 2022, you can see the effects of language not being apparent within communities. It is, it is shocking how little people know their language, including myself. I only know English. And same with, my, same with my mother, same with my sisters. Without language, how can you identify first foods? How can you identify the plants and the roots that your people have been eating? How can you identify the physical places that you need to be and the resources that are there? The importance of language connects you directly to your culture, your people, and your land. And we've seen without this connection, there's been a disruption within the balance and the harmony of Native society. Storytelling is a vital part to Native American culture. And Roger spoke about how important the coyote and the first food story are to the Nez Perce people and why these things called first foods are the first. The coyote stories educate people on why life is the way it is. There is a story that I remember specifically when walking around the homelands, you see these swallows everywhere and they, they dive deep near you and they're just beautiful. They kind of remind me of Snow White and the birds that fly around Snow White. They're very small. But he, he said that the Swallow Sisters were hoarding the salmon and they weren't giving it to the people. They built a dam that trapped all of the salmon in and that is just not the way of the people. Um, it's about sharing. It's about not taking all of the resources. It's about leaving some for the future and leaving some for others. And so the coyote turned them into swallows. And so like that's a that's a direct way of like, this is how the swallows came or Another story about the lateness of some animals to a very important meeting with the coyote. And they were supposed to be there on time, but they were, they were playing games and they were just messing around late last night. And so they got to the meeting late and the meeting was over and coyote looks at them and he's like, nah, this isn't going to fly. <laughs> so the coyote turns them into stones. And that explains why these animals are currently extinct. So yeah, just for background and storytelling and the importance of that within Native cultures as well is really interesting. You've been mentioning first foods a lot, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the importance of first foods, what are they, and how the people interacted with them. First foods are the first foods that gave themselves up to Native people within specific lands. So for the Nez Perce and the Confederate tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, these foods said, I will give you my body, I will give you my soul, if you promise to take care of me and the land forever. And so water did this first, and then salmon came, and then deer came, and so on and so forth. And it's also interesting because today when ceremonies occur, like the root feast or other ones that involve food, the way that the food is presented and the way that you should be consuming the food is in the order of which bodies of life 
gave themselves up first. So you drink water first, and then you eat salmon next, and then you eat deer. Today, again, 2022, with the now decades of having dams being put in place in many of the Pacific Northwest rivers, salmon aren't as abundant as they once were. And yes, not only do they disrupt this ecosystem of the life cycle, but they also disrupt this important culture to these people. So you mentioned dams and the dwindling of the salmon. I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how else this continued genocide against indigenous culture has in tandem harmed the land. Lee shared with us a shocking story of the negative effects of pesticide use with farming that we need to hear to understand how industrialization affects landscapes and people. When we first moved to the Lapway area, my youngest daughter and I went out looking for a berry we called sakea, sarvus berry. And we found some. The bushes were just really thick. And uh, so we picked. And the next year we went back out to those same bushes so we could pick again. And there were no berries, there were no leaves, nothing on those bushes. They were like, it was like scarecrow bushes. And I stood there and I looked at it, wondering what happened. And I noticed there was a field next to where those bushes were, a farmer's field. So whatever that farmer put on, his crop destroyed our foods. But that that's what's happening. There's new landowners to a lot of places where our people have gathered, and they don't allow us to go gather there anymore. Lee describes this apparent lack of knowledge that uh, many farmers have today, and that's that they don't know what plants are around them, what native species are there, and how those are important to native cultures. And when the Nez Perce people aren't there to steward their own lands, these breakages happen, these disruptions happen, and these plants can't grow. Going physically into the homelands, we mainly saw white people around. And this has to do with the previous tensions between the settlers and the Native Americans, the Native people not feeling welcomed back into their homelands. Those, the people that need to steward the land, the people that made these promises to the first foods, aren't there to keep those promises. As Roger says, I've been to ceremonies, I kid you not, and all of a sudden the cotton would start picking up. You know, the evergreens start moving, the wind starts shifting. Right in the middle of the ceremony, things are come alive. Like, we hear, we're hearing your songs, we're hearing your prayers. The land's coming alive, you know. Where, where were you Indians at all this time? Well, I'll tell you where we're at. We're incarcerated in reservations. Our kids, entire generations of kids were taken out of their communities and put in boarding schools in Canada, U.S. It's the land that feels the loss. It knows its people are gone. So, Tati, you've been talking a lot about how, how this harmony has been broken through these generations um, and centuries of genocide and attacks on culture. How have indigenous communities, and specifically the Nez Perce, begun to try and heal themselves? This is going to be a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> there are multiple ways that healing is taking place. That's healing within the body, healing within the land, healing within the next generations. And Katie Frenier, the project leader for the Northeast Oregon and Southeast Washington Protect and Restore Program for the Nez Perce Tribe Watershed Division in Montana Pergano, the watershed restoration specialist for 
the Northeast Oregon and Southeast Washington Protect and Restore Program for the Nez Perce Tribe Watershed Division. Both are working intensely in restoring and healing the land in the Wallowa Valley. And luckily enough, Nana was able to interview both of them while we were at the homelands. That interview can give us a lot of knowledge into what is currently happening at the homeland site as well as in the Wallowa Valley. So let's give that a listen. Well, I think one thing I would mention is that when the tribe plans for their future, they plan for seven generations. And so when you're asked to be an employee of the tribe, that is something that you have to be very forward thinking about. And commonly, you know, humans don't live very long. And a lot of times I think that we seek resolution within our lifetimes. But I think one thing that the tribe has taught me is to look past that. And one thing these projects, you know, standing next to a river and, and working to help a river be itself again and be healthy and provide for the ecosystem has taught me that it's not about how long I'm here. It's about the change that I affect while I'm here. Well, I think with projects like this and kind of a movement through Willow County, I think we can agree that we've seen kind of a shift from there was sort of an unwelcome demeanor from non-tribal members in this community, but I think that's shifting and it's really become more of a welcoming spirit to bring tribal members back and invite them Mm -hmm. to come. I mean, it's not really our place to invite, Mm -hmm. but to make them feel welcome Mm -hmm. to come back. And part of that is to harvest salmon. Mm -hmm. And currently the populations are depressed, but uh, we're certainly working hard to create harvest opportunities because that is such an important traditional and sustaining practice of tribal members. I think also the the only thing that I would add is I think it's really important to everyone involved in the community, tribal members and non-tribal members, uh, to begin to heal. And you hear those discussions a lot uh, from tribal leadership and from members of the community, that there is a deeper understanding now that everyone belongs here. We're all here now. And so it's a time to move forward and to heal and to work together. And I've been here just over 20 years, and I've definitely seen a pretty drastic switch in how people perceive tribal members, or even those of us who are non-tribal members who work for the tribe, that believe in the tribe, that agree with the tribe and align with them. I think we've seen a lot of positive change. And I think something that's really come to light for hopefully the community and certainly the natural resources field and the folks that work here in the natural natural resources is that the Nez Perce tribe is a co-manager of these resources. And they've worked very hard to establish themselves as a co-manager. And fisheries especially, we work as co-managers with Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. And um, even the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla have influence in this area and other federal agencies. So we've really um, made a lot of progress to establish that. We talked a lot about how river restoration, for example, has changed a lot from kind of forcing the river to do what you want, to take a certain shape or function a certain way. But what we're really learning is allowing the river to kind of creating a canvas so that the river can function how it it needs to. And part of that is interacting with the floodplain and putting wood back in the system and creating, you know, I guess, enhancing native vegetation. And I think as that relates to the tribe, and that's something tribes have understood for 
tens of thousands of years. And we're finally, I think, starting to embody that and incorporate that into our work. We see with the discussion about river restoration and the physical restoring of of the land. And this includes putting in native species again. I think it's a really interesting connection having these native species be brought back to their homes as well as the Native Americans bringing back to their homes. When we have native species where they belong, the river knows what to do. The river always knows what to do. It's that we're blocking the river from being itself. And when it has these familiarities, it's able to live and roar in a way that it's used to. But the actual placement of native species have been healing the land. And that's something that Katie and Montana are doing. They, they mention that they are, they're not Native Americans and they're not Nez Perce people in any way, shape, or form, but that they've been learning to restore the land, not for themselves, not for their own fulfillment, but for the needs of the future and the, and the needs for the land. It's not, it's not necessarily a want, but like a need, a have to. I guess another part of healing that doesn't necessarily involve the land so much, but just the reputation of the Nez Perce people, the Native American people. I think right now in history, there's been a time of more recognition to a degree discussing the atrocities of the past, specifically towards Native American people. Again, past the uh, river restoration, like I said, this is going to be a long answer because now we have to think also about the youth and educating the youth on their native ways, their native tongue, their native land. Having them be in touch with who they are fully is going to excel reservations and the native people in a way that gives so many of us hope. As Lee said, What gives me hope is these young people and what they're doing. This learning will continue to carry on the cultures and the, and the stories and the history of the Nez Perce people and the Native American people. It's not dying out. It's, if anything, it's the most alive that it's been in a long time. And something that uh, Lee speaks about that we're seeing also arise on more Native youth going into higher education. Their specific hopes is that they can have Native people working within their own um, like fish and wildlife department or in their education department to be able to be the people speaking for their people is really important because they know what's best since they know the culture, they know the history, they know why things are the way they are, rather than an outsider having to learn and pick up on these things all at once. And we're seeing that today. So those are ways where healing is happening. We're healing ourselves. We're healing our culture. We're healing the past. We're healing the future. We're healing the present. Like, it's just all connected. And I think I think many of our speakers are rightfully upset about the past. They all have this intertwined connection of hope. In some ways, reparations for themselves is going to occur because it has to happen. I mean, Nikia keeps saying at any means necessary. And that is at any means necessary. Like they, it's a fight in some senses. It's a fight to, to hold on. It's a fight to continue on this culture that has been stomped on and been disregarded for for so long you are the current day ancestors and so what we do now we have to think about how that is going to impact the next generations there is work towards the revival of culture the revival of language and also this idea of self-love with self-love you have strength and within yourself and i think once you find that you can you can start to heal yourself in the land and just you know 
you talking about self-love and self-love is part of the healing process it, it does make me think of like if we think of ourselves as part of the land and as genuine true components of a community a culture a people then that self-love turns into love of land and love of people and that that self-love if we can really if we can strive for that it expands outward towards everything uh so tati how is healing happening in the Wallawa Valley? Beyond river restoration and um, the the healing in that area, we also have healing with the homelands, the, the physical site of where now Nez Perce people can come home to. It's a place where they have powwows and where they have gatherings and they have first food ceremonies. That Yeah, just like having physical land where you can be you and know that your um, ancestors were there it's beautiful. It really is. And in the physical place of the homelands, there's this huge cliffside where I saw marmots running around and it was just so green and beautiful. Even on a rainy day, it looks, it looks wonderful there. And I remember Preston said that he understands why Chief Joseph fought so hard to keep this place. I guess, yeah, the homelands is a physical place now where this healing is taking process. And you can see like the culture and community within there as well as people not involved in the tribe being able to appreciate it more and also learn more about the history. And then beyond that, there are also instances of more land back. There are farmers, ranchers, and people who, I guess, descendants of past farmers and ranchers who are learning about what happened and want to give back to the Nez Perce people. And um, that has been happening as well. But land back in general is occurring. It's not this thought. It's not this idea. It's something that's happening. And it's happening now. Um, and the progress that's already been made, I'm glad you asked this question because it also ties in with hope that this is an actuality that we can that we can do, is that we can give land back and, and right the wrongs of the past. Thank you for listening to Land Water Justice, Wallawa Valley.